This radio program is PG-13. Parents strongly caution some material may be inappropriate for children under the age of 13. Send me Jesus' mission was to comfort those who mourn, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, and open prison doors for those who are bound. For those who want more than status quo Christianity has to offer, Blazing Grace Radio begins now. And here is your host, Mike Janung. Hey, Mike Janung here, and welcome back to Blazing Grace Radio. Thank you for coming along with us, and this will be a interesting journey these next two weeks. So if you look in Scripture, there are two main themes. Love is the first one where God set Adam and Eve down into this beautiful garden, provided all their needs, um, incredible bodies, no sin, no flesh to deal with, no temptations, no nothing. It's just beautiful. So you see the love of God being showered down on them. And the second theme we see throughout Scripture is war. Because right after Adam and Eve are set down, Satan comes in, and in his first assault on the human race, he wins that battle with devastating consequences. And all through Scripture, you see those two themes alternating. Uh, God pouring his love out on mankind, Satan coming in to steal, kill, and destroy, So it's been the war of the ages ever since the beginning of time. And where we are today is a period of darkness where the enemy has taken significant ground, not only outside of the church, but inside of it. And so part of our mission here at Blazing Grace Radio is to equip you to be an overcomer and a fighter. And the next two weeks, I'm blessed to have Greg Reed with me. Greg Reed is a minister and he's a former private investigator. He has trained over 250 criminal justice classes on occult crimes and crimes against children. He is a survivor of ritual and sexual abuse and has written over 12 books. He has an honorary doctorate in divinity from Logos Graduate School. He directs Youth Fire Ministries. So the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare and, and equipping you to be an overcomer. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on with you. So let's just jump right in, and Greg, let's go ahead and have you share your story, and and, uh, let's go. Very good. Well, um, I grew up in Southern California during the 60s, and uh, it was pretty much an idyllic childhood setting in some ways. Uh, My dad was a police officer. Uh, My mom was uh, a homemaker, and she also was a a nurse part-time. And uh, I was uh, one of three sons. And uh, my brothers seemed to be unscathed by a lot of the consequential things that happened uh, with me. But we were born into a lineage that contained uh, a great deal of occultic-type leanings and practices. Uh, my grandmother was uh, practiced a lot of occult things in Pasadena before I was even born. And thankfully, she finally got her life straightened out. Pretty much uh, gave her life to the Lord before uh, I was born, but the consequences of family practices for generations usually fall on the children to some degree. 
And uh, so I was kind of born into a world that was occult-related. I, uh, from the very beginning of my life, I can remember having horrible nightmares as a child that had no explanation for it. And then at some point, when I was fairly young, uh, I was uh, fell into the hands of some groups in the neighborhood that I was in that included uh, both pedophiles and uh, people that were doing child pornography, as well as people who were doing uh, uh, black magic practices of varying, varying kinds. And uh, I was a child of a, probably about eight when they started to include me in some ritual practices they were doing. I, I will never remember everything, and I don't think I have to. I'm thankful I don't, because the things I do remember were pretty awful, uh, being included in and being used for uh, child pornography shoots, um, watching ritual uh, satanic-type practices taking place, and eventually, uh, when I was around 11 years old, watching uh, a friend of mine that kind of was... He was actually grooming me. He was part of the group, and his job was to kind of befriend me and bring me into their circle so that my parents, you know, trusted them because they were church people and uh, eventually um, uh, culminated at the age of 11 watching my friend uh, murdered in a ritualistic situation. And that after that, there was just, I was completely a fragmented, mess. I had I couldn't put two and three together. Uh, my parents didn't know what to do because they were unaware of what's happening. They knew something was going on, but they had so many problems of their own at that point, they didn't know what to do with me. And then I started to decompensate. Uh, my grades went from being pretty sharp when I was in grade school, and they, they just totally tanked. And I started to become angry and sullen, and I was highly a highly sexualized child, uh, and I began to uh, drink heavily and smoke. And I began to, as a natural, what I found out later was a natural part of their conditioning process for a child like me, what they refer to as classic conditioning. Uh, it broke through all those psychic walls, all those spiritual walls, so that I was like an open door to spiritual things of that are not from God. I started to practice the Ouija board. I started to do uh, fortune-telling type things. I studied every single occult book I could. Uh, and at the same time, I was drinking. I was just... and I'm like 12 years old at this point when I just really started to fall apart, and from there it got worse. And probably when I was 14 was the worst, and I had actually been hitchhiking, and I had was picked up by a pedophile who molested me, and it totally shattered everything in my life, just destroyed everything. And I remember even saying at the time, because I didn't know at that point, I'd gone, I wasn't going to church anymore because some of the same people that went to the church were the people who were involved in the dark side stuff. And so I didn't want to go anymore. And I was looking for whatever power there was. But when that moment happened, when I'd been molested, I remember asking God to have somebody to just pick me up and, and kill me, because I couldn't live with, with, the, with the, the horror of what had just happened to me. So my solution was to drink more. And I drank so heavily that when my parents uh, were really going through it, we'd lost our house in a fire. They were struggling to hang on to their marriage. 
so I was just falling through all the cracks. At the same time, there was this growing sense of power from the occult practices that I was indulged in. I started to try and recruit kids into the occult in high school, and I would use any forum I could to tell them about the occult and what they could do if they you know, really learned, and so I got a couple of followers, but the darkness was taking over, and I could tell my life was being completely annihilated. And I would look in the mirror, and it wasn't me looking back at me anymore. There was something else there. And I promised at some point that I would never do anything really bad. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't do black magic. I wouldn't do cursing. But I verbally cursed somebody one day that I didn't like. And I told somebody, I said, I hope somebody you know, picks up a gun and kills them. And uh, that night, that person was murdered. And I'm not saying, I mean, the devil's a deceiver, and I understand that. It, I, it may have had nothing to do with it, but in my mind, I'd crossed the line. And it was like I could almost hear, you know, the, the enemy saying, see, you can never belong to God. You're evil. Look at what you did. So any thought that there could be any kind of connection with any God of love, if there was one, was gone. And at the same time, God in his mercy kept on sending Christians to me. I'd be in a store, and some lady gave me a little Bible, and I'd say, thank you. And at that time, I'd, I think I was probably more New Age than anything else, although I was practicing more, you know, some witchcraft-type related things and getting darker. Uh, I My worldview was that all paths lead to God. Jesus was a good man, but that was about it. Uh, the Bible was just a book, you know, the typical thing. Uh, no such thing as hell. Um, and But these other people, I kept on getting picked up when I was hitchhiking by Christians. And I remember distinctly one man picking me up and saying, Jesus loves you. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know that. And he says, no, you don't understand. I live in Manhattan Beach, California. And the Lord woke me up this morning and told me to drive all the way out here. I think it's about 45 miles. And he said there would be a young man standing on this corner of Topanga and Valley Circle, and I was to pick you up and tell you that Jesus loved you. And there was part of me, Mike, that said, what if, the, what, what if this is true? I'd never heard this before in this way. And the other part of me said, it can't be true because I'm too evil. God cannot love me. There's no way he could love me. And so I kind of blew it off, but it was tormenting because I thought, what if, if, is there any possibility that this is true? And then another guy uh, picked me and a friend of mine up, and we were hitchhiking, and he told us about this Bible study that they had in a little house in Canoga Park, California. And he said, you guys, you need to come to this, then it's really cool. You know, this guy was in his 60s, you know, he's like, this is going to be a cool place. You guys would really enjoy it. And like, nah, thanks, but no thanks. And but he gave us a card with the instructions on how to get there. And our original plans were to see my friend, who was an atheist. We were going to say, oh, he's 14 and a half, 15, 14 and a half now. Um, our plans were to go see his girlfriend. She wasn't home. And my friend looked at me and says, why don't we go to this meeting? It should be fun. And I thought I was kind of floored. And I said, sure, whatever. We went to the meeting. It was a packed out little house of just tons of people, kids and adults. And they're singing songs like happy songs that had nothing to do with church songs, but they were songs about Jesus. And there was a sense and a presence that I had never felt in that room, and it scared me to death because it wasn't the darkness that I knew. 
And when the guy who led the meeting asked everybody to bow their heads and asked if somebody wanted to receive Jesus, I looked up and my friend raised his hand. And I was so shocked, and I was so scared at this point. And on the way home, this guy took us home, and he and my friend were just talking like they'd known each other their whole lives. And part of me was happy because my friend was so unhappy. He had had, you know, like six stepfathers and got beaten all the time. And I was happy for him, but I was sad because I knew he was going someplace and I couldn't go because I'm evil. That was my thinking. Well, this gentleman gave us two books. One was called The Good News for Modern Man, which was a modern Bible. And another one called The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson. And I took that book on a trip a few months later, and I decided to read it. And it was about how David had faced down New York's worst gang leader, Nicky Cruz, and nearly, uh, you know, and just, and, and, you know, Nicky Cruz said, you know, you know, who do you think you are? And he said, well, Nicky, I'm here to tell you Jesus loves you. And Nicky Cruz just pummeled David onto the floor. And he said, what do you think about that, preacher? And David said, Nicky, and these were the words that changed my life, said, Nicky, you can cut me up in a thousand pieces, and every piece is going to scream out, Jesus loves you. Mm-hmm. I took the book and I threw it across the room. I was so angry and so hurt all at the same time. And I said, why didn't anybody ever tell me God had this kind of power? Why didn't anybody tell me that God could love the worst person? So I was in total torment. To make a very long story short, shortly after that, I had a very personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And uh, whether, I, I mean, I, uh, maybe we'll go into details at some point, but I was taken to where Jesus was, and I was held in the arms of Jesus Christ and felt loved for the first time in my life. And all of a sudden, all my philosophy about other gods and all the other ways to God were gone, and I knew that I knew that I knew that Jesus Christ was real. And I ended up at the same prayer meeting about three months later, and I knew that this was the moment that it it was either going to be all or nothing. And that was the night that I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, and it changed everything from the inside out, and the love of God just poured in me and just poured out all that darkness out of me, and nothing's ever been the same since. So that's the short version. Mm. Wow. <clears throat> and then I had to catch my breath. That was, <laughs> that was pretty powerful, Greg. Um, and then how did you move from, from there? How did you get involved with your, you know, your background with criminal justice classes and occult crimes and all that? Where did you go from there? Well, you know, I'd, I'd held on to those things. I'd, I'd actually gone into ministry. Um, and then in 1986, I was living in Fort Worth, Texas, and I was still trying to put a lot of the pieces together in my life and wondering if that part of my testimony was something that God, about you know, knowing what the occult was about, was something that God might use, but it was like always, not yet, not yet. So I moved to El Paso, uh, Texas, and was met a lady who had a uh, an outreach called the Watch Network, because at that point in 85, 86, 87, the nation was being deluged by crimes of the occult, mainly from adolescents, but also adults. And there was like a national obsession in the youth realm with kids getting involved in satanic practices. 
And then we, so I began to work with that group and sharing my story. And then we were getting requests from law enforcement groups and some uh, military, uh, the medical facility, the military hospital, because they were getting victims of the occult. They were getting crimes uh, committed by children, uh, young people, and against children. And we started to get calls from other agencies who were seeing these crimes and didn't know what to do with them because they had never heard of them before. And it really was, at one point, a national epidemic of occult-related crimes. And so I just followed one door after the other and found myself training National Homicide Conference in Oklahoma and just one venture after another, a lot of adult probation classes, juvenile probation, uh, and we just went through the whole, about 200 and 50 classes before it was over, where we had I would do an eight-hour block on occult crimes. Somewhere in the midst of that, it bridged to crimes against children because we found that some of these adult groups that were involved in the occult were also involved in trafficking, what they call human trafficking now. Mm. And we started to investigate those. By then, I'd been given a private investigator's license, so we started to look into those. And that's when we started to get the pushback and we realized the human trafficking thing, especially if it was tied into the occult world, was a much bigger thing than we had any perception of. And to this day, I'm still shocked at some of the things that we came across and had to had to deal with. Mm. <clears throat> I see news articles every week where men are being arrested for child pornography at every level of the church, from the pastor to the youth pastor to Sunday school teacher. And I'm wondering how how prevalent in this and, and how one thing that struck me about your story is you were talking about people who were going to church who were in the occult. It was a good cover for them. And, you know, I mean, where, where best to find, uh, at least at that period of time, you know, if you go to church, you know, people pretty much expect that you were a good person, even back then. I mean, the whole scandal with the, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church, for example, had a hard time actually getting any kind of recognition until the last 20 years. It's really in any church, because nobody wanted to believe that people called themselves Christians, or men or women of God or a man of the cloth, would do this to children. It was unthinkable. Well, now we've we've made that bridge, and so it's easier for me to see now where people who were wanting access to children for more than just pornographic purposes, who wanted them for ritualistic purposes, which is part of some of these more sophisticated groups' goals, uh, would find uh, easy trust in churches. At least it was until recently. It was easy to trust uh, people, in the, you know, neighbors, friends, because they looked like good people. And so a lot of the people who were doing some of this high-level stuff, they were in positions of power. They were ministers, they were judges, they were uh, lawyers, they were doctors, um, pretty much in every strata of society, and so uh, people would trust them because of their position. Mm. <clears throat> One survey saw said that uh, 20 years ago there were around 20,000 witches in the U.S., and today there are more than a million. Talk about how the occult is spread through the country and, and what the effects are. Well, it's been devastating uh, to a generation in some ways, and I, I still have to I'd argue this point. I, I, I gave up the argument dealing with a lot of believers concerning the Harry Potter thing, but that was a game-changer for a generation. 
that that kind of legitimized witchcraft. And of course, people argue, even Christians, and say, "Well, it was just fantasy." And I remind them, the pornography is fantasy, mm. and that does not make it right. And then, in fact, Rowling's rituals in a lot of those books are rituals that are real rituals. They're not some fantasy thing. They're things that we actually trained law enforcement what to look out for. And so we saw that build up and the acceptance of all that for a generation and realizing this is our first really post-Christian generation where reaching youth is very difficult because they have been so almost initiated by Harry Potter into occult thinking and into a th- an, a, an anti-Jesus sort of thinking. It's in, The occult is in all the video games. And, and designed by a lot of people who are in the occult. The explosion of, of Wiccan witchcraft is not too surprising, but I think it's been in this last political season that we've seen there's been a connection between several groups that are operating on an occult realm, and they've become political. And they've gone around the country. They're trying to put up uh, a, you know goat statues of Satan in, in, in courtroom settings, outside of courtrooms, demanding the Ten Commandments be taken down, where they have to leave their statue. It's really been breathtaking to me to see how far they pushed this, and uh, we have really become a pagan society in the last 20 years. Mm. Yeah, I remember when that those articles came out, when they, they went, that Satanic Temple went down to Arkansas, and they did it again in Illinois, and it just seemed like there was... Barely a peep of protest from Christians from what I was seeing. Were you seeing the same thing? I was, and this is not surprising because, and I know, you know, some of the issues that we're going to be discussing here is the whole, you mentioned War of the Ages, which is, of course, the title of one of the books that I did that I never wanted to write, uh, because dealing with spiritual warfare is something I was kind of, I think, born into the kingdom to do because of my background, but also because of my commitment to the Word of God and what it said and realizing that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickednesses in high places. And as believers, we have to face the end. We have a real enemy. It's not a fantasy. It's not a joke. It's not something we need to be obsessed by or scared by. But I found that most Christians fell into the category of either this is scary, don't talk about it, or oh, you know, this is, you know, no big deal, so what? We've got the victory, so whatever. With And it and it totally denied the reality, at least for the last 20, like 2000 until probably now, we have been so devoid of training believers in spiritual warfare that we're now dealing with a generation that is so locked into the occult that it's really going to take prayer and the power of God to set these people free from this. And we're not equipped. Mm. We don't know how. And that's got to change. We have two minutes left, and just briefly, you talked about Harry Potter. So listening to your talk, it felt like you were saying that people are watching actual occult practices when they're watching those movies. Is that true? Absolutely true. And I'll just give you one small example. In one of the uh, movies and in the book, particularly, there's an occult shop that the kids are going to where there's a withered human hand underneath the glass case. And they asked him what that was, and the occult shop owner said, well, that's the hand of glory. That's an actual ritual that's done in the satanic world where the hand of a thief is cut off Mm. and planted in the setting 
in the sand wherever they're doing, and that the fingers are used for candles. Mm. That's a real ritual to so to see it in Harry Potter tells me people were exposed to real witchcraft. It's not a game. It's not something that was made up. Mm. Okay, you got one minute, Greg. Talk to church leaders and tell them what they need to do. Well, pastors and church leaders uh, need to, first of all, need to start providing opportunities for believers to be trained in spiritual warfare, not in a sensational way, but in a practical way that teaches biblically how to fight the really that we're in the battle of the ages for our country and for the world. I, I would open your church up to people who can train properly. And the other things is please invest in youth ministry. If we lose this generation in 20 years, the church is going to be stone cold dead in the Western world. Mm. Okay. Well, thanks, Greg. And join us next week as we will be finished. We will be talking more about this and we'll be talking about equipping you to be a warrior. Blazing Grace is a nonprofit international ministry for the sexually broken and the spouse. Please visit us at blazinggrace.org for information on Mike Janung's books, groups, counseling, or to have Mike speak at your organization. You can email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call our office in Chandler, Arizona at 719-888-5144. Again, visit us at blazinggrace.org. Email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call the office at 719-888-5144.